The United Nations have just published a much-anticipated report on the state of the world's soils. The results are not good. We'll be asking why and taking a down-to-earth look at the consequences and what we can do to reverse the trend. Plus, in the news, why life-drawing improves self-esteem, why the asteroid Ceres might be an invader from outer space, and the looming antibiotic apocalypse, why we might be facing a future of bugs we can't kill. I'm Kat Arney. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. E-cigarettes have blazed onto the scene recently and they've become a big hit. They work by using a heating element to boil or vaporise a nicotine-rich mixture that's then inhaled. An added facet is that there are literally thousands of flavours which are made by adding scent chemicals to the mixture. Why is it, though, Harvard's Joe Allen is wondering, that some of these flavour chemicals are turning up in e-cigarettes but have already been linked to serious lung diseases? For over a decade, we've known about severe lung disease associated with inhaling flavoring chemicals because of workers in the popcorn packaging industry, who several, of, many of whom developed severe and irreversible lung disease after inhaling these flavoring chemicals. So our interest uh, in this topic came from knowing this history of occupational disease for workers in the popcorn industry, and then learning that there are over 7,000 flavors of e-cigarettes uh, available to consumers. And uh, we, we thought, and turns out correctly that uh, these flavored e-cigarettes would have a lot of the same chemicals that were of concern from the workers over 10 years ago. Tell us a bit about those workers and how that particular story came to light in the first place and what went wrong for them. Sure. It was about uh, uh, in May of 2000 in the United States, eight workers uh, who worked at a microwave popcorn processing plant reported to have a severe and irre- irreversible lung disease called bronchiolitis obliterans. It was uh, investigated and determined that this was due to inhaling flavoring chemicals in their workplace. So they would mix up butter flavor for the microwave popcorn product, and then they would hail the heated flavoring chemicals. It became The disease became known as popcorn lung because this is where it was first discovered in these workers. And what you have is virtually the same thing happening with uh, flavored e-cigarettes. You have a heating element heating the flavoring chemicals and a consumer inhaling the chemicals. And more critically, are they the same chemicals that you would find in a popcorn factory? We found at least one in 92% of the flavored e-cigarettes we looked at. In particular, one of the chemicals that got the most attention is called diacetyl or diacetyl. And uh, we detected diacetyl in over 75% of the flavored e-cigarettes we tested. And this is the uh, chemical that in the United States, uh, you know, the investigating agency said it's highly likely that diacetyl contribute to the occurrence of fixed obstructive lung disease, also known as bronchiolitis obliterans, also known as popcorn lung. Now, tell us how you did the study, first of all, and then we can look a a bit at at what these chemicals are doing in these e-cigarettes if they've already got this track record. Sure. So our study is a very simple design. Uh, We tested 51 flavoring chemicals. Remember, there are over 7,000 available. And we we set up in my lab uh, a system to mimic uh, smoking or inhalation. So we we pull out the the chemical just like a user would, and then we capture it on a a sampling device, and we analyze it according to standardized uh, methods to look at three different flavoring chemicals. So uh, diacetyl, 
acetoin, and 2,3-pentanedione. What do they smell like? Well, so this is what's interesting about the, the flavoring chemical uh, issue is that <clears throat> it first started, we first became aware of this in the popcorn workers and it was butter flavor. But these flavorings are not limited to just butter. In fact, um, diacetyl is used in a, in a wide range of flavorings like caramel, butterscotch, uh, pina colada, all sorts of fruit flavors, banana, apple, grape, strawberry. So these flavoring chemicals are widely used to flavor uh, a lot of the food products we consume. And actually, in our study, we found um, diacetyl and other flavorings in flavored e-cigarettes that we deem are appealing to children, like um, cupcake and cotton candy flavored e-cigarettes. I mean, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Whether or not this acts as a gateway into smoking behavior. But when you inhale these flavors from an e-cigarette, I think one critical question is, if you're going to link this to the same sort of lung damage that the popcorn workers got, is there evidence that what's coming out of the, the vaporizer in an e-cigarette is going to be particles which are the same sort of size, the same chemical characteristic as those popcorn workers would have been breathing in in the factory? Right. So this is one of the, the follow-up questions that uh, we're starting to look at, and I know others are, but it's the, uh, it's the characterization of these uh, at a bit finer scale. So we, we don't know much at all right now about the hazard associated with these flavored e-cigarettes. And that was one of the goals of our study is to be sure that when we start talking about e-cigarettes and safety and risk is that flavoring chemicals are part of that conversation. To be clear here, you're not saying these chemicals cause this lung disease. But what you are saying is there's very strong evidence from other situations that there is a, a strong association between exposure to them and getting lung disease. Therefore, it's reasonable to be prudent and say, well, there could be a risk here. We need to do something about this. That's exactly right, Chris. Right. So this wasn't a study of a, of a health effect. It's simply de uh, designed to show that we have the presence of these flavoring chemicals that didn't just cause minor disease. It caused severe and irreversible lung disease in workers. We don't have the same kind of warnings or knowledge reaching consumers of flavored e-cigarettes. Many of these consumers are children, and many of these flavored e-cigarettes that we've shown in our study are, uh, we feel are, are even marketed towards kids. So what would you like to see change? Well, I think uh, at a minimum we should be regulating e-cigarettes as carefully as we regulate uh, uh, cigarettes. Harvard's Joe Allen, and that work was published this week in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives. Sobering thought, isn't it? Now, 90% of us have experienced moments of low body confidence at some point, and these feelings are linked with the development of depression, anxiety, and also eating disorders. One way to boost your body image is by participating in physical activities like dance or martial arts. But for the more artistically inclined, new research has shown that attending life drawing classes can have similar effects. Viren Swamy from Anglia Ruskin University sketched out his findings for Felicity Bedford. We had two studies. In the first study, we looked at attendance at life drawing sessions and the association with women's and men's body image. And we found that greater attendance at these life drawing sessions was associated with uh, higher body appreciation or positive body image among both women and men. In the second half of our study, we, we followed a group of women who'd never attended life drawing classes before, and we measured their state body image, their current feelings about their body image, both before and after the class. And we found that attending the life drawing class for about two and a half hours had a significant effect on their body image. They felt better about their body image immediately after attending the class. That's great news for anybody considering going to life drawing classes, that you can have a fairly immediate impact upon attending just a few classes. Exactly. So we think that the effect is both short term, but also if you continuously attend a life drawing classes, this seems to have a long term effect as well. How did you measure people's feelings about their bodies? 
we measured three different types of body image for both women and men. We measured social physique anxiety. This is how anxious they feel about showing their bodies in public. We measured body appreciation, which is a measure of positive body image. And we measured in women drive for thinness. This is how, how much they feel a drive to be thin. And in men, we measured drive for muscularity, which is a drive to feel muscular. You were looking at the attitudes of people attending the classes. How might drawing somebody else naked make you feel better about your own body? Well, I think it's about embodiment. Um, so a theory in, in body image research is that any activity that promotes embodiment will result in more positive body image. So embodiment is any activity that promotes greater respect for your body or greater feelings of love and uh, openness towards your body. Now, typically embodiment is looked at in terms of actually doing something. So for example, you might actually do dance rather than just watching dance. But life drawing might be one activity where you can experience um, embodiment vicariously uh, and in life drawing sessions in particular you're not just looking at another body you're also trying to experiment with that body in terms of reproducing in, in a form of art the other thing that life drawing sessions might do is that it might provide a safe space in which to explore your own feelings about your own body in relation to other people and just in relation to yourself what about if the models are really attractive could this have the opposite effect it's possible, but I think one of the things about live drawing sessions is that you're exposed to a whole range of different types of bodies. It's not just attractive people who are life models. Um, I, I think given the nature of life drawing, I think even if the model was particularly attractive, the function of, of seeing that body and experimenting with that body in, in an artistic sense would have probably have the same effect. But over the course of a, of, a, of a period, say if you went to life drawing classes for, say, a year, you'd be exposed to a whole range of different bodies, some that you might find attractive, some that you might not find attractive. But it's that process of seeing those bodies and absorbing what those different bodies mean, I think that is most important. Could it be any drawing, not just life drawing, that's causing this improvement in your body image? I, I think that's an interesting question. I, I think it, it is something about life drawing that, promotes embodiment i think if you can find a different art form that has the same effect in terms of embodiment you might find the same effect i don't think you will find the same effect if you were just drawing a tree for example should generally we be exposed to more nudity whether it's our own bodies or other people's I think there are different forms of nudity. You have nudity in everyday life when you see your partner or you see yourself. There's nudity in pornography. There's nudity. Um, well, there's all sorts of nudity. I, I don't think it's just being exposed to nudity that matters. I think it's the process of engaging with nudity and exploring what that nudity means, either in an aesthetic sense or in relation to your own self. That's probably the, 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 the key point here. Engaging with nudity. Now, there's a reason, if ever I heard one, to listen to The Naked Scientist. Felicity Bedford was speaking with Viren Swamy about the psychological benefits of participating in life drawing. It's interesting, though, Kat, isn't it? I do wonder, and the point they don't make there, is whether or not it's just the, the confidence of the model to take all their clothes off in front of a big crowd of people, and that sort of rubs off on the people who attend and makes them feel more comfortable in that space as well. I don't know. It might, it's an interesting thought. I think life models are very, very brave. No, never been to some life art. Maybe I should go and take part. Might improve my body image. Synthetic biology is, is a very interesting phenomenon. It's very much grassroots based. There's this large community of very enthusiastic participants. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we return to the world of synthetic biology, discovering some of the ways this revolutionary technology might change the world. Plus, a genetic test to reveal flu risk and a twisted gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and Chris Smith.
Coming up on the show, now don't soil yourself in excitement, Chris. We're going to be talking about the sorry state of the earth beneath our feet. Well, I'll try and keep control of my bowels for you, Kat. But before that, we have got your myth conception, of course. So what have you been myth busting into for us this week? Well, this one comes with a sting in its tail. As a child, I would often be dragged out into the local forest to walk the dogs. And inevitably, being a bit clumsy, I'd end up blundering into some stinging nettles. As soon as I got stung, my mum would delve into the undergrowth in search of a dock leaf to rub on the reddening bumps coming up on my pale legs. But was it doing any good? Before we find out, let's take a step back and see how nettles actually cause their stings. Their leaves are covered in a multitude of tiny, hollow, needle-like hairs made of silica. That's the same stuff glass is made of. When someone like me brushes up against a plant, the tips of these fragile hairs break off, piercing the skin and injecting a cocktail of nasty chemicals. One of these is formic acid, which is also found in ant bites. Now, getting concentrated formic acid on the skin can cause severe irritation, pain and blistering. So it was originally thought to be the major culprit responsible for the pain and misery of nettle stings. But it turns out that the levels of formic acid in the delicate hairs are too low to cause this kind of reaction. There are other acids in the stings too, such as oxalic acid and tartaric acid, and they're found in other types of plants as well. For example, rhubarb leaves are a potent source of oxalic acid, and it can be toxic in high doses. But like formic acid, they're present at relatively low doses in nettles. So what else is in there that could be responsible for the pain and misery of a nettle sting? The other prime candidates are three chemicals known as histamine, acetylcholine and serotonin, which are all naturally normally produced in the body. To take a look at each of them in turn, serotonin is produced by nerve cells and it's usually associated with transmitting pleasurable sensations by signalling between nerve cells in the brain. But when injected by a nettle leaf, it has a much more painful result as it irritates the skin. Next is acetylcholine, another chemical that usually transmits signals between nerve cells. Again, when injected directly into the skin by a nettle's barbs, the sensation is far from pleasant. But perhaps the major culprit is histamine, responsible for triggering pain and inflammation, as well as allergic reactions. That's why people take antihistamines for allergy-related symptoms such as skin rashes, wheezing and snuffling. So this is probably one of the prime reasons that nettle stings quickly redden, itch and swell. And it also suggests that antihistamine cream might work to relieve the pain. But the skin reaction is probably not down to just a single molecule, but the effects of all the nasty things mixed together. So it's a complex issue. Now, on to the main question... Does rubbing a dock leaf on a nettle sting make it better? Sadly for my childhood knees, the answer is no. There have been various claims that the sap in the soft leafy plant is alkaline and maybe this helps to neutralise the formic acid and other acids in the nettle sting. But the acids are only a small part of the problem and dock leaves aren't actually even alkaline. So that's definitely not true. There are other claims that they contain natural antihistamines, but again, there's no evidence to prove that's real either. In fact, it's more likely that dock leaves are just a placebo, creating a distraction from the pain of the sting through the rubbing action of a cool leaf on the sore red bumps. So while my mum may have had the best of intentions with her insistence about searching for dock leaves for my clumsily nettle-stung legs, it was probably just as good as kissing it better, and it would have been more effective if she'd had some antihistamines in her handbag. 
more myths from Cat next week. If you have something that you would like us to look into, then you can send your bits of suspicious science into us and we'll give them a good probing. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, what's black with a few white spots and a half made of water? The rather surprising answer is the solar system's largest asteroid, Ceres. Scientists had thought that this spherical body, which measures about a 1,000 kilometres across and orbits out beyond Mars, was made of rocky rubble left over when the planets finished forming. Now, closer inspection by NASA's Dawn probe, which is currently orbiting Ceres, has shown that the dark black surface of the asteroid is punctuated with bright white spots, which appear to be made of salts, ammonia and water ice. But finding these means that Ceres might not originally be from the asteroid belt at all, but is instead a deep space interloper. I spoke to David Rothery about the findings. Ceres is the largest asteroid. It's the largest body in the asteroid belt. It was the first asteroid to be discovered very early in the 19th century. The white spots were actually suggested from the best Hubble Space Telescope pictures you could get, but... There were just areas which looked brighter than elsewhere. As the Dawn spacecraft approached, the most obvious one came into view. In the middle of this crater that's tens of kilometres across, we have areas kilometres in size which are highly reflective. People were wondering what they were, and people are still not sure. I, I went on the on the, the Dawn mission website uh, just now, and there's a popular poll on the go. You can vote for what you think the white spots are. 10% of people think it's some kind of volcano, presumably an ice volcano. Nobody thinks it's a hot lava volcano. 6% said they're geysers. 6% said they're made of rock of some kind. 28% said ice. 11% said salt. And 39% said other. So I don't know what they were thinking. But now we do have this week some new data in the form of these two papers in Nature, which are using data and measurements made by the Dawn spacecraft. So this gives us a much clearer idea as to what these things are. So what are those papers saying? Well, we do have a better idea. One paper, which is based on data from the framing camera, they're showing that the central parts of the white spots probably are some kind of salt, a hydrated version of magnesium sulphate. And you can see a haze rising above the white spot. So that suggests something coming off of the the white spot, which is scattering light around it. Absolutely. Something is coming off the surface, and it seems to be water vapour that has sublimed off some ice, carrying dust particles with it. So the source of the water or the ice available to sublime when the sunlight hits it is being replenished each day on series because... The available ice sublimes when the sunshine hits it, then it ceases to sublime, the haze disappears, you don't see it at dusk. But by the next dawn, there's enough water ice arrived at the surface to sublime to produce a fresh haze. So there's some active internal transport going on, and that's very exciting. This water coming from inside somewhere then? Yes, I think the water which is feeding the haze, must be coming from inside Ceres. Now, there's, there's no evidence, unlike many of the larger icy moons, that Ceres has an internal ocean of liquid water. That would be very surprising. We can't imagine a, a, a heat source to keep it warm enough for it to be liquid water. So it's just ice not too far below freezing point that's convecting and moving around, maybe. To be honest, we're flummoxed. We don't really know, but... The evidence is stacking up to suggest that 
the places on the surface where ice is being replenished and able to sublime away to space and you get left behind these hydrated salts. And why is this important or how does this remodel or refashion our view and our understanding of the solar system, how everything that we have and we see today got where it is now? Well, to have so much water inside Ceres is a problem. Ceres orbits not too far beyond Mars, much closer than Jupiter, and it's this side of the snow line. Get to about Jupiter's distance from the Sun, it's cold enough for lots of ice to condense directly from the solar nebula when the solar system is forming. Where Ceres is now, for most of the time at least, has been too warm for a lot of water ice to condense. So it's possible Ceres formed further out from the Sun and has migrated inward. And that probably brings us on to the the second paper in the same issue of Nature, which is providing evidence that Ceres is from even further away because it is suggesting that the surface contains what they're describing as ammoniated phyllosilicates. That means clay minerals with ammonia trapped within them. But nitrogen or ammonia trapped inside Ceres is a very big problem if Ceres grew where we now see it. And the suggestion from this work is, well, maybe Ceres started off in the very outer solar system, a Pluto or beyond, and somehow found its way inwards. So it doesn't look like the archetypal biggest asteroid anymore. It is a guest in the asteroid belt. And uh, I guess that's a mystery that we now need to try and solve. David Rothery from the Open University, and that work was published in the journal Nature. Next, the antibiotic apocalypse. News broke recently of bacteria discovered in China that are resistant to antibiotics used normally as a last resort. And this has prompted fears that we could be on the cusp of an age where bacterial infections are no longer curable. So, are we all doomed? Or is this just scaremongering? Georgia Mills puts the problem under the microscope for us. On the 11th of December 1945, a man named Alexander Fleming won a Nobel Prize for the world-changing discovery of the antibiotic penicillin. Penicillin and drugs like it work by either killing bacteria or rendering it ineffective, and they've completely changed the face of modern medicine. Upon receiving his prize, Fleming gave a speech, during which he mentioned the threat of antibiotic resistance. Fast forward 70 years to the present day and headlines are cropping up everywhere about bacteria growing resistant to so-called last resort antibiotics. The words post-antibiotic apocalypse have even been used. So how worried should we be and how did we get into this mess? I went to visit Dr Nick Brown, a consultant medical microbiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Resistance is a natural phenomenon, and in many respects, I think it can be inevitable that following exposure, bacteria will develop resistance. The bacteria um, mutate so that they are able to evade the action of the antibiotic. The key to the current problem, I think, is that whereas in the 1950s and 1960s, whenever antibiotic resistance developed, we were able to replace an antibiotic with a new one, now we're in a situation where there have been no truly new antibiotics in the last 20 years or so. And one of the big concerns that we have now is that the 
pace in which resistance appears to be proliferating is increasing. So why is the rate of resistance increasing? Well, we're using antibiotics all the time in medicine. They're used in hospitals for operations and are prescribed by doctors. But humans are not the number one user. The vast majority of the antibiotics that are used in this country and in Europe are used for the therapy of infectious disease in farmed animals. That's Dr Mark Holmes from the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Well, the big problem is that not that we use too much antibiotics on healthy animals, but we probably have too much endemic disease in farm animals. You and I will favour cheaper meat and the farmers and the agriculturalists are very good at developing husbandry systems that produce cheap meat. The downside is that these animals are relatively stressed, so they tend to have higher levels of endemic disease. There's another issue, and that is to keep the costs down, it's not feasible to treat individual animals. So if you get a pen of animals and you get one or two that develop diarrhoea, then the antibiotics tend to be given to the whole pen rather than to the individual animal. And that is probably something that is less than ideal from the point of view of generating antimicrobial resistance. If we keep going at this current rate, what kind of world do we have in store for us? Nick? As close as some parts of southern Europe, um, there are infections in patients where there are no antibiotics left to treat infections. And in those situations, obviously, the, the outcomes of treatment of severe infection are poor going forward some years, you would think there's a possibility that some infections that we now take for granted can, can be treated might not be able to. And that threatens the, the very nature of, of the way that we practice healthcare at the moment. For example, uh, without antibiotics, we wouldn't be able to have a safe hip replacement. Without antibiotics, you couldn't have cancer chemotherapy, you couldn't have a, a kidney transplant. So antibiotics are absolutely vital to the way that we live at the moment and the way in which we expect our healthcare to be delivered. It's quite scary stuff. So uh, what do we do about it? There are lots of things that are, are being done about it. One is to try and protect the antibiotics that we do have left, and that is trying to improve the way that we use antibiotics, don't use antibiotics where they are not needed. Then the second broad area in which we can try and attack this issue is to consider how we can get new antibiotics into development and onto the market. And uh, again, there are lots of initiatives to look at uh, small drug discovery companies and indeed into the larger pharmaceutical companies to try and re-stimulate uh, this market, which is broken for many reasons, including the, the fact that it's not a financially viable market for those companies at the moment. If anyone's looking for new mould, I think I have some species as yet unknown to science in my fridge. But what about the current rates of use in agriculture? Dr Mark Holmes. The main issue here is, is our drive for cheap food and a free market economy. Farmers are under incredible pressure to produce foods at lower and lower costs. And you and I as consumers, through our purchasing power at supermarkets, are responsible. So it's the system that's at fault, not individual interest groups. And most of the time we deal with this with legislation. So in China and in North America, 
antibiotics are actually used for growth promotion. So healthy animals can be given antibiotics to make them sort of grow faster and it goes back to producing cheap food. In Europe, we recognise that using antibiotics for growth promotion is not a good idea and we have legislation in place. That creates a level playing field. So we need strong regulation and strong leadership. That was Georgia Mills speaking with Mark Holmes and before him to Nick Brown. You are listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Kat Arney, he's Chris Smith, and now we're dishing the dirt on one of the Earth's most precious but declining resources. It's not animal or vegetable, but a collection of minerals. More specifically, it's soil. 2015 was declared the Year of Soil, and this week the UN released a much-anticipated report on the state of the world's soils, and unfortunately the results don't look good. John Quinton is a soil scientist from Lancaster University and he joins us now. John, what did this report say and can you give us an idea of the scale of the problem with the world's soils? Yes, so the highlight from the report, Kat, was that we really need to stop degrading our soils. Um, The report suggests that we're losing around a football pitcher's worth of soil every five seconds, which is is quite mind-blowing really. We also need to stop the decline in in soil carbon. So soils hold on to about a third of our carbon and we're losing that back up into the atmosphere. We also need to rebalance the amount of nutrients in our soils. So some soils in some parts of the world have far too many nutrients and in other parts of the world they just don't have enough. And then the final point that they make is just that some of the data that we have on our soils around the world is just really, really old and we need to update it. And in terms of what we do know, given that the data is is kind of old, what do we know about the kind of degradation that's facing our soils? The kind of data that we have would suggest that around about a third of the world's soils are degrading. And the biggest threat to them is soil erosion. So that's either by wind erosion, where we've got dry soils, often in arid areas, which are just getting blown away, And then the other form is through water erosion. So this, again, is when soil surfaces are exposed to the elements and we get a heavy rainstorm and it's actually washing the soil off the hill slopes and down into the the rivers and then perhaps out into lakes or even into the ocean. So those are the two ones that we're worried about in agriculture, but we're also concerned about the area of soil which is being paved over. More and more of us are living in cities, and as we move into the cities, we cover the soil in concrete. In Europe, an area around about the size of Cardiff is paved over every year. So that's another threat to the the functioning of our soil. So can we lay the blame really at the expansion of the population and expansion of agriculture? Are these the main drivers of the problem? I think we are clearing a lot of land to produce food. We're going to have, what, around 9 to 10 billion people living on this planet by 2050, and they're going to need feeding. And that's going to mean that we're going to need land to grow crops in them. So that's going to be really one of the big pressures. And when you convert forest or grassland to agriculture, you degrade the soil. And that, I guess, is a problem, is what what is the risks of losing so much soil like this. Why should we care? I mean, it's it's just dirt, isn't it? Just dirt, gosh. <laughs> Heathen. It's the brown gold beneath your feet, the living, living skin of the earth. Scientists reckon that around about 
10% yield reduction by 2050 due to erosion. So that's equivalent to losing 150 million hectares is no longer going to be productive. So it's, it's, it's serious it, stuff. But is it just food that's a risk here? So the other big concerns would be around carbon. Soils store around about a third of the world's terrestrial carbon. So more than all the forests and all the atmospheric carbon combined. So if you lose the soil, you lose that store. The other thing that soils do for us is to keep us supplied with clean water. Most of the water that falls on the the terrestrial surface is going to hit the soil before it ends up in rivers and lakes. And so soils play a really important role in both buffering and attenuating the flow of water, but also cleaning it up. It's also packed with organic Mm. matter and soil microorganisms, and those things are actually you know, pulling out all those nasty chemicals that we don't want to get into our water supply and helping to produce clean water for people. So that, that, that's another threat that we need to need to be concerned about. Absolutely. I, I will not call it just dirt again. Thank you very much. That's Professor John Quinton from the University of Lancaster. Consider yourself chastised, Kat. Now, one of the very biggest reasons that we're in this sort of sorry state is because of population growth, let's face it, and the resulting intensification that this necessitates in agriculture. But is the poor quality of soil in turn subsequently impacting on food quality and therefore also on our health? Grad Jackson went digging into the dirt with Reading University's John Hammond. There's a worm. Yes, there's a worm. Okay, so we've just dug up some soil here uh, and you can see straight away there's a huge diversity of ingredients in the soil. The soil provides a number of things, uh, water, but also some mineral elements, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium and sulphur are the six main ones and then there's some micronutrients that are also in there like iron and copper and zinc which go into uh, really important functions in the plant. Like what? Because I think I need calcium to make my bones stronger. So what does the plant need, say, phosphorus or nitrogen for? Well, nitrogen's the biggest one. That's The plant needs that in the greatest quantity, and that goes into making things like proteins. So if we don't get enough nitrogen in the plant, then the plant can't make chlorophyll, and so the plant starts to look yellow. How does it get from the soil, then, into the plant to make the chlorophyll and make the plant grow, ultimately? The plants take up those nutrients from the soil solution. So it's moving water through the soil up into its roots and out through its leaves. And and with that flow of water, it can bring with it some of those nutrients. And in particular, nitrogen and sulphur come through that pathway. Some of the nutrients like phosphorus and potassium, they're harder to move through the water. So they have to move through a, a diffusion process. So they move from a high concentration in the soil to a low concentration so when the um, nutrients get to the root surface um, there's a number of proteins in the in the root cell that then transport those nutrients and this ultimately enables the plant to grow from a seedling all the way up into a an adult crop that's right (laughs) if there are any toxins in the soil would they be also taken up just like the nitrogen and the phosphorus that you were talking about Yeah, so some heavy metals that we sometimes find in the soils can be taken up through the same process into the plants and ultimately into what we would eat. That's not the only way you could ingest heavy metals, though. You could eat the soil itself. I know what you're thinking. I don't eat hunks of soil for dinner. But 
It's actually a lot more common than you think. Usually they say about 1% of the weight of a vegetable is the soil attached to it. I know, I was quite surprised too. 1%. That's a colleague of John's at Reading, Chris Collins. And think about it. How well do you really wash your veggies? I'm definitely guilty of not scrubbing as well as I should. So there's probably much more than 1% of my vegetable that's actually soil. Carrots because they're in such intimate contact with the soil, are often more contaminated than other crops where the edible portion is above. So, for example, like a tomato would be much less likely to be contaminated than a carrot. Although that's a little hard to stomach, I can't help but think, how bad can it be? Surely our soils, and certainly the soils that are used to grow food, can't be all that polluted, right? Uh, They're very common. Any any urban area, you will find detectable levels of lead from old lead piping, lead in petrol, and you will also find elevated levels of the organic pollutants, mainly associated with transport, but also, for example, a lot of people used to put the ash from their fires into their gardens because they thought it had a nutrient value. What they didn't realise is there were some of these organic pollutants associated with those ashes. What Chris researches is what happens when we eat this polluted soil. He took me to a lab where they're simulating the gut tract from your mouth to your anus. Put a lab coat on. At one end, the polluted soil goes in and is mixed with an acidic solution to recreate the conditions in the stomach. Next is the small intestines, where it's a little bit more alkaline. So the solution in the stomach jar is moved into the intestine jar, where something is added to bring that pH up to a more neutral level. The next bit is the colon, and it's where things took a turn for the worse. Oh, yeah. It's not quite as bad. I mean, it's not great. It's, it's getting gradually worse, isn't it? What could be so bad? Well, this is where Chris takes his intestinal samples and mixes them with real human poo. Yes, you did hear me right. Hominid excrement. And it stinks. It's like being on the farm, isn't it? Yeah, but the worst thing is, is I know this is human. Whereas cows is like slightly more acceptable. It's slightly sweeter, isn't it? Why put yourself through hours of lab time surrounded by the sweet scent of excrement, I hear you ask? Well, to see if these pollutants are siphoned off the soil, left to float around in the gut solution and absorbed into your body. What's known as bioaccessible. What we're looking for is the bioaccessible fraction. So... That is the amount of pollutant that is desorbed from the soil into the gut solution. And how much is bioaccessible from your experiments here? 10 to 30% goes into the colon solution. How much, does, um, how much of an effect does your microbiome, these microbes in your gut and in your colon, how much of an effect do they have on how much of these pollutants you absorb? We really don't know because that, that hasn't been tested. One thing we did test is whether uh, using a polluted soil, it um, changed the population composition of the microflora. And actually, in the soils we used, we didn't find a significant difference between the polluted soils and a non-polluted soil. Does it make a difference to how accessible these pollutants are? That might be a beneficial thing. It might be that they break them down and turn them into more benign compounds. So they might hydroxylate them, for example, which makes them more water-soluble and they're more likely to be passed out. Is there any evidence to suggest that that whole 10 or 30% 
is then absorbed into the blood. Truth is, we really don't know that there's been tests in pigs, but there's a lot of metabolism of organic compounds when they're in the, in the body. So it's really difficult to test it. But I suppose the danger of it being in the bloodstream is that blood goes everywhere. So exactly. equally, yeah. if it's not metabolised elsewhere in your liver and excreted through your urine, it could end up in your brain or whatever. There is some sort of secondary activity on that, so it's unlikely that the whole amount would be exposed to one particular target organ, if you like. But there is the potential. I'm not sure how much I can stomach of it in here. I can feel myself holding my (laughs) breath slightly. It's not the uh, most pleasant place to work, but good science. Chris Collins and before him, John Hammond from the University of Reading and enjoying the aromas in the laboratory, Greer Jackson. Mm, Not for me. The plea to take our soil health seriously is a strong one. Our food, our safety and our climate depend on it. But how do we go about taking better care of our soils? Is it possible to rejuvenate the earth beneath our feet? And if so, how? Soil ecologist Richard Bargett joins us from Manchester University. So Richard, can we or are our soils a lost cause? What can we do for them? It certainly is possible to rejuvenate soils and it's quite remarkable when you look around the world at soils that have been affected in the past, how resilient they really are. I mean, you can find soils, for example, that were completely obliterated during the First World War that are now showing signs of soil health and restoration. So it really depends on the extent to which they've been degraded. But I think one key thing about restoration of soils is that the rate of soil formation is extremely slow. I mean, where I live around here, most of our soils are around 10,000 years old and they will have formed about one metre of soil. So it takes, on average, I mean, it varies obviously from place to place, but it takes about 1.1 millimetre of soil is formed per year on average. So it's a very slow process. But having said that, there are things you can do. And John's mentioned a few. I mean, the first is stopping the forces that cause soil degradation, like continuous cultivation, etc. And really key to it is restoring the organic matter and recycling of nutrients within the soil system. So my mum is a keen gardener and, you know, I, I always think if you want to improve your soil, you just chuck a bag of manure on it. Is, is that the main solution or are there other ways that, uh, of preserving soil and, and making it better? Well, that might be a good solution in in a garden, but I don't think it's going to be a solution to restoring soils around the world. I think key to restoring them is getting organic matter back in them and restoring the soil community, the food web or the living soil, all the different types of organisms within there. And that, to me, is really crucial to restoring soil functions within degraded landscapes. So does this mean changing the way that we use soil, changing the way that we farm, basically? Absolutely. And there are certain things that you can do relatively easy in some parts of the world. I mean, there's different cropping practices like crop rotations, no-till agriculture, which is a form of agriculture where the ground isn't ploughed. But the other thing you can do is by selecting different types of crops that can actually promote beneficial organisms in the soil. Given that it does seem to be the way that we're farming is leading to quite a lot of the degradation in our soils, the loss of our soils, and changing to more sustainable farming methods that are kinder to our soils, are we still going to be able to feed a growing population? I think a lot of the management options potentially have a trade-off in terms of short-term yield reductions. But I think there is the possibility through things like crop breeding, 
and engineering of the rhizosphere, for example, we are beginning to learn that roots exude different kinds of chemicals through them, which act as signals to warn crops of oncoming pests, for example. And also we're beginning to learn that different root characteristics or combinations of root characteristics can promote the growth of certain bugs in the soil, which improve nutrient acquisition, etc. So I think it's certainly something we can't ignore for the reasons that we've talked about. Thank you very much. That's Professor Richard Bargett from the University of Manchester. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. We've been talking about soils today as the UN released a report that argues we should be doing more to protect them. But studying the relationships between plants and the soil, as Richard has been doing, has reaped some benefits in the commercial world. One winner is Al Blaker. He's Australia's first truffle farmer. Now, truffles are a highly prized food delicacy, but they're really hard to farm. Sapling trees need to be inoculated with the fungus when they're very young, and this sets up what's known as a mycorrhizal relationship between the two. The fungus brings nutrients to the tree, and the tree roots then feed the fungus sugars in return. The fungus fruits periodically by producing buried golf ball-sized structures, which are full of spores, and that's what we call a truffle. They also taste delicious. I went along to see how Al does this at Manjimup Truffles in the southwestern corner of Western Australia. They're the fruiting body of the mycorrhizal. Now, every plant in the world objective is to reproduce. This is what that's about. We've just learned to manage it and grow it in a fashion where we're, it's a viable industry. Those would sit just below the, the surface of the soil then, what's attached to the root of the plant that had grown them. Every truffle is attached to the plant. Usually you'll find a fine root. Sometimes you'll find truffles that they've totally grown around the root. You actually harvest them and they've got a root sticking out each side. Can we try a bit? Yes. They're about the size of a walnut, give or take, aren't they? What, how much do you think that weighs? These are small ones. That one there is probably 8 to 10 grams. How would you describe that flavour? It's a, sort of, it's a subtle flavour, isn't it? It's, it's quite nutty. It's nice. Yeah, oh, yes, it's, it's a brilliant flavour and... and and everybody's got their own comment. Most, a lot of them say seafoody. I say earthy, nutty, you know, but everybody's got a different take on it. And these are truffles from Europe. They're a strain from Europe that you have established here in southwestern Australia. Yep, they're the Perigold truffle. They're the one from the Perigold region in Europe. We've had DNA done, and we've actually got a nice mix of truffle here, actually, of quite a few of the different strains. We thought we had one pure strain, but it turns out we don't. How did you get them here? Ah, yeah, well, we don't talk about that. (laughs) Suffice it to say, then, you got the truffles here in the first place, and what about the trees you're growing them on? Oh, well, we've been... We collected seed off every known hazelnut and oak tree we knew in the state, and that's where we started from. And we we had a lot of heartache here in the first few years, learning how to understand to germinate the hazelnut tree. It's a little bit tricky to grow the hazelnut tree, and we got that figured. And the oak trees, well, we weren't sure what oak to use, so we used every one we could find. As it turns out, there's only really three or four oaks that are uh, suitable, and that's what we use now. We've learned a lot in 20 years. Why did you need to grow them from seed? Oh, so you can inoculate and get the fungi onto it when it's a very small plant. The bigger the plant, the more it's costing. Right, so you had to start with a seedling and you established the relationship with the truffle-producing fungus as a seedling in your nursery. Is that what you're saying? Yes. You plant those trees out onto the land here. How long between the sapling going in the ground and then you beginning to get truffles off of its roots? 
Well, we have seen it in five years, but about year seven or eight, you start to get some decent production. Once it kicks off, it usually it quadruples each year. So if you get 400 grams, you'll get 1.6 kilos. And, you know, it, it goes and goes and goes into about year 12, 13, and then it sort of starts to steady. We're getting into a stage now where we're trying different techniques to keep the trees highly productive. Uh, that's the next big challenge. How do you get the truffles out of the ground? How do you find them? Oh, you just use a dog there. Not pigs, because in Europe they, they use pigs, don't they? Yeah, but I like my fingers. <laughs> what do Pig, you mean? Pigs want to eat the truffle. The dog hasn't got the slightest interest in eating the truffle. He just wants to treat off you. That's why my dogs are fat. <laughs> I, I did see some rather large... Lab, they look like Labrador. Are they Labradors? Yep, they're Labs. You train them to go and, and sniff out the truffles? Yep, yep, that's their job. They Twice a day they go out and sniff around and then they get nine months off. <laughs> And then you reward them every time they find one, which, which would explain why they are quite rotund. That one we saw earlier was quite big. Oh, he's just a big boy. A bit like the owner. Well, yes, yeah, so the same. Does, do you weigh the dog at the end of the season to tell how many truffles you've found? Because presumably the scale of the size of the dog is proportional to how many treats he's had. No, I just check the book. <laughs> We've just sat here and, and cut some slices off and eaten them, though. Does it not feel to you a bit like you're sort of eating $20 notes? Because they're quite expensive, aren't they? Oh, they're only $5 notes, but yeah, you get over it eventually. <laughs> do you end up, because you, I mean, we've got a huge basket of them here, do you, do you end up having a truffle for tea? Or, or are you sick of them now? Do you, do you eat them? Occasionally. When should you put truffle in with your recipes? You never cook truffle. You add truffle after the cooking's done. Because we've been eating these raw. Yeah. Is that the best way, in your view? Oh, the best way to eat it is make a truffle butter, chop it up in little pieces and nearly melt down some unsalted butter and put the truffle through it and let it set and then just drop it on top of the steak. I reckon that's the best way in the world to eat it. Oh, God, that sounds absolutely amazing. That's truffle farmer Al Blaker. So, Chris, did you bring me any truffles? A bit of a confession, Kat. Uh, It's actually quite tricky to move these things internationally, you see. So as Al gave me all the truffles we dug up that morning, I had this bag full of them. And there was about £300 worth of truffles in this bag. I was driving back from Manjimup towards Perth and I I went past this extremely nice-looking winery called St Aidan's in the Ferguson Valley. It's run by a guy who's an anaesthetist called Phil Smith and he makes exceedingly nice wine. And I just found myself accidentally trading him my bag of truffles for lunch in his winery at St Aidan's and some rather nice wine. So, no, is the answer. That's absolutely terrible. Well, just to wrap up on our subject of soils, we just quickly return to our guests, Richard Bargett and John Quinton. Richard, why has no focus been paid to our soils until now? Why is now the time when we really need to pay attention to them? Well, I think more people live in cities, so they are more distant from actually contact with the soil because in the past... On a daily basis, people will come into contact with soil and actually rely on it more. John, what happens if we don't do anything? We don't eat. That's the biggest (laughs) problem. Yeah, if we have no soil, we can't grow any food and we will all die. We would have uh, extensive barren rock with little biological activity. So all the plants and animals that we see on the, the Earth's surface at the moment just wouldn't be there. You know, if I take you back what, around about 4 billion years, just after the Earth was formed. It was really the formation of soils at that point with the evolution of biological life on the planet that brought the atmospheric CO2 concentration down and enabled things to grow and evolve and live on the planet. So I guess if we remove the soil at this point, that's where we're going back to, a very 
different world to the one that we all live in at the moment. The kind of things we've talked about so far involve things like farming systems, policy, agriculture, global change that we need to bring about. But are there any things that we can do on an individual level? You know, are there any things we can do in our local environment? Richard, what do you think? Well, I think there's an enormous number of things that people can do. I mean, you only have to look back to the Second World War, for example, in the Dig for Victory campaign. And cities or people in cities produced enormous amounts of food, which helped to sustain the population at that wartime. And I think now there are many opportunities for people to grow their own food. Community gardens are booming, for example, allotments, etc. So this is another way of people getting more contact with the soil and actually building the fertility of soils for a growing world population. So, John, what do you think that we can do to, to save our soils on a local level? At a personal level, recycling your organic material that you're consuming, which originally came from the soil, and getting that back to the soil. So having a compost bin can only be good because you're helping to kind of close that cycle a little bit. So I'd encourage everybody to get into recycling and try and restore their own soils in their backyard or their allotment or in in, in other places in in their local environment. Thanks very much to all our guests this week. That's Richard Bargett and John Quinton live in the studio. And also we heard from Al Blaker and John Hammond. And now it's time for our question of the week with Felicity Bedford. And she's been scrabbling around in the dark looking for the answer to Sterling's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week. Brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation. Supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. What causes sleepwalking and what can be done to prevent it? I don't think I ever sleepwalk, but I wonder how many people don't know that they have strange nocturnal behaviour. I spoke to Dr Ian Smith from Papworth Hospital's sleep clinic, who explained how a snooze can lead to a late night stroll. Sleepwalking is almost normal in children. Up to a fifth of children will do it at some stage, usually with no important consequences. Sleepwalking starts in deep sleep, and this is deeper in children than in adults. This deep sleep stage is the most refreshing and seems to be important to brain repair and memory sorting. But memory itself is switched off during deep sleep, and so one feature of sleepwalking is that the walker usually has no recollection of what's happened. Some stimulus, a noise, being jogged, an irregular patch of breathing jolts the sleeper out of deep sleep into a mixed wake sleep state. Most people would just fall back to sleep, but those prone to sleepwalking will get up and start roaming without waking completely. Typically, the walker will have their eyes open, but will not fully interact with other people. They'll often navigate obstacles skillfully, but may not recognise dangers. They might, for example, try to climb out of a window. Uh, Usually an episode lasts just a few minutes, and then the walker will return to bed. Is there any particular reason you might be prone to wandering around the house like a zombie in the dead of night? Sleepwalking runs in families, and in some people, a marker has been found in the genetic code, which is strongly associated with the condition. It's not advisable to try and wake a sleepwalker, as they may be confused and aggressive. That's good to know. But if sleepwalking is in your genes, is there anything you can do to prevent it? In managing a sleepwalker, we would look to reduce triggers, which include irregular sleep habits, stress, alcohol some antidepressants and sleep apnea, that's interrupted breathing during sleep. Occasionally people put themselves and others at risk during sleepwalking and medication can reduce the frequency of episodes. 
Simple precautions for safety include locking upstairs windows, removing sharp and fragile objects from the bedroom. In people with disruptive sleepwalking, we would recommend referral to a specialist sleep clinic. Thanks, Ian. I hope that helps, Sterling, and that answer means you can sleep easy now. Our next question is from James. So what are the bags that you get under your eyes when you're tired? One thought, they're facial markings that have evolved to warm people away from crabby bad sleepers. I wish I knew the answer to that. I am chronically insomniac at the moment and I basically look like a panda most of the time. If you think you know why people who don't get enough sleep get black rings or bags under their eyes, please do get in touch and let us know what you think. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Or if you're up late at night and don't know what else to do, you can get stuck into the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. I would hope that you would be able to go to the forum and get stuck in even if it wasn't late at night and you had something that you would much rather be doing. But there we are. Well, that just about wraps things up for this week. Thank you very much to producer Greg Jackson. Now, do join us next time. It's our Christmas special and we're going to be dipping into the science of the chocolate fountain. Do be warned, though, the programme is going to contain cracker jokes that could quite literally harm your mental health. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye from me and from the rest of the team. Bye-bye.